Hey, I'm Craig Finn. I recently put out a record called A Legacy of Rentals. It's a record about memory, how we remember friends that are gone, places that have changed, major events that are part of our past. These songs are memorials, incantations, affirmations, legends, and prayers. Like all stories, they're subject to the imperfection and limitations of memory. The distortion happens to our own histories when stretched by time and distance. These small adjustments become part of the stories themselves. I decided to create a podcast called That's How I Remember It, which examines the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode features a discussion between myself and one creator about the role that memory plays in their art. These conversations will reveal the different way that each creator synthesizes their remembered life experience to tell stories about themselves and the world we live in. As a guest, I have my friend and brilliant and prolific songwriter and author, John Darnell. John has been making music as the Mountain Goats since I believe 1991 and has released countless albums which contain some of my very favorite songs. Originally the sole member of a lo-fi bedroom project, the Mountain Goats have grown into a lush rock and roll juggernaut, as we'll see on their new record, Bleed Out, which comes out later this summer in August. In addition, John has become an acclaimed author of four books. The most recent, Devil House, was a New York Times bestseller. And I am honored and proud to have John Darnell joining us here on That's How I Remember It. The history's rewritten When the memories get meddled with John, thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, it's a pleasure to see you, man. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'll start how I start with everyone. Do you consider yourself to have a good memory? For me, it's a complicated question because I used to say I had a bad memory. And I've had, uh, I've had people in my life say, it's not a bad memory, but it's a weird memory. Like people who are inclined to be uncharitable will say I have a selective memory and it's good when I want it to be. But I know that's not really true. But sometimes it's very bad, right? Sometimes it just doesn't, I can't call stuff up. And then I will have a remarkable memory for tiny details from a million years ago. So I have a, I have a, an oddly functioning memory, which when I was in therapy for a long time, I learned that a lot of people who've had the sorts of experiences that I had as a child and adolescence, it does weird things to your memory like that. Like the way you remember things and this profound recall for some things and total erasure of other things, uh, that's, a, that's a dynamic that's common in people like me. Do you think it helps you as a songwriter, as an author? Well, I mean, I think, I think I, I well, I, I know actually that I've been thinking about memory as a subject since the earliest days of the Mountain Goats, right? There are, there, if you listen to the early songs, there are a million of them with the word memory in it. Like there's in uh, the first Ajax single uh, has a, a song called Alphabetizing, right? Uh, where the climactic line is like, Yet the, let the years come and take away my memory. I will not forget the shock that ran through, ran through me when I saw you, et cetera, et cetera. It was an obsessive topic for me in, in the early years of the, the Mountain Goats. All my characters were always, always obsessing about what they would or would not remember and using their memory as a weapon sometimes and saying, you know, uh, which I think, you know, I mean, it's such a vital question, especially after the Holocaust, right? You talk about, about remembering things so that they don't happen again and, yeah, that's a very living question is whether that, you know, how, how that works, if that works. So, so yeah, so it's something I was thinking about from the very earliest days of the band. Yeah. I mean, do you think it helps more with the, with sort of the big parts of the stories or the, or the small details? I think it's more, it's, it's a presence because everybody in your story, like if you are telling a story in song or something, your characters also have memories and it's unlikely that they have perfect memories. Like it is an aspect of their existence is what they choose to remember. I and mean, one thing about memory is that it's not like the memory we have in our computers, which just has all the data right there, right? Memory always frames, always narrates, right? Always, uh, always sort of tells a story, right? 
computer memory does not tell a story. It's just data, right? We are not actually computers. We like to consider the, the hard drive is like the brain of the computer, but it's not at all. The brain has all kinds of uh, agendas, you know? <laughs> so, sure. So, uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I think um, at one level, yeah, having a memory, a sharp, you know, a, a sense of what details can do and what they can mean and how they can illuminate a story, that's part of it. But also understanding that, like, you know, the way you remember things and, and the, where your focus lands is an important aspect of how you tell your stories. Yeah, I, I always feel like the, the the memories, even when I'm writing something that's completely fictitious, ends up populating the details, you know? Like, I'm not a car guy, so if I need a car name, it's like the last car I got into. Oh, it's a Nissan, Nissan Altima, you know? Because that's, you know, so the, the Uber came and said, look for a Nissan Altima. And that ends up in my song, because I know it's a car, <laughs> but I don't know how to think about cars, you know? That's funny, because you're such a detailed guy, right? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the I, mean, I think about... Fiestas and fiascos is just so loaded with very specific details about what drinks and, you know, and what people are wearing and so on and so forth. For me, actually, though, with cars, it's funny. I have a, a dynamic where Peter is a car guy, big car guy, right? And so if I name a car, like sometimes I'll seek some help from him. But then if I really want to have fun, I'll pick one and hope that he will see me and go, oh, perfect. I think. When I picked a Grand Am in The Great King on Goths, I was like, I bet you Peter's going to like the Grand Am. <laughs> so, <it's> like, <laughs> so I have fun with that. And I, I, when I'm writing books, I always call Peter and I go, hey, I have a real estate agent who's driving to see something and his car needs to be functional. He's proud of it, but he's kind of unduly proud of it. And it's 1986. What kind of car is it? And Peter could immediately go, <laughs> okay, well, so, I mean, uh, a Celica actually or whatever. <laughs> so. I love that. I love that research. And when I was, when I did Chill Out Tent with, on Boys and Girls in America about someone who goes to a festival tent of, with an OD of sorts, I, I called a friend who was a doctor and I said, you know, what would happen? They said, well, they'd give you a bunch of saline and they would, you know, activate a charcoal. Um, yes, and, yes. And so I put that in the song and actually we, sometime later we were playing a rock fest and the doctor in charge of the tent came over and said, hey, that was really good. You got it right, you know. I said, "Well, I did my research." Man, it takes it takes weeks to get the activated charcoal out of your nose. I got to tell you, <laughs> they, they put it in me when I was seventeen, and it's so bad. There's a memory. See <laughs> memories. Uh, what did you have a first musical memory? Like the first time you became aware or liked music? So no, uh, I I have early ones, but I don't have one that that identifies itself as the first. I mean, I was around music my entire life, uh, especially my my first five years before the divorce. My father was a musician, so and he and one of his, I, I don't. It's hard to get a clear picture of like how this figured in his life, but at some point, I think as a side hustle or as a possibly thinking of future plans beyond grad school, he was selling records. And before, like you know how distribution works in in the record business, and it's a very regimented process right mm -hmm. like there's the, the way it used to be especially the 90s it'd be a one stop right and that person gets all the stuff and but back in the 50s you know you could buy records in bulk from whoever and then walk from record store to record store and go hey i got the new glenn miller right i got 10 of them uh, you want them and they go, oh cool i was looking to get those the chains weren't established the record stores would be too new so he did that right the reason i'm telling you this is because he only did it for a while i never got much of the story from him just much very late in his life but there were all these old seven inches in the garage, right? That were of music that he didn't care about, right? He was a jazz guy and a classical guy, but these were like Herman's Hermits and the new Christie Minstrels. So actually, this must have been late. It must have been mid '60s and not '50s. 
New Christie Minstrels, Herman's Hermits. What's that? Mary Hopkins, who was on Apple Records, right? Doing the, those were the days. Those are three that I remember finding in the garage sometime before I'm five, or maybe when I'm five, right? And being excited, I'd found these records I didn't know anything about, you know. And then I would go and play them uh, in in my room on the on the room stereo. And the probably the earliest playing records memory that I have is me explaining to myself how fade outs worked, right? Because I didn't have any data, right? I knew nothing. And I believed, very. I can't have been older than four. I don't know that I actually believed this, but I imagined that the people lived in the grooves, right? And that they were waiting to play the song. And you put the needle down and they play, and then they have to sing quieter and quieter toward the end of the song. <laughs> <laughs> and it would, I mean, the, the amount of time I believed this was probably like under a week or something, but it's very vivid for me, like listening to it and going, oh, wow, they're really, you have a lot of discipline. I mean, I wouldn't use the word discipline, but it's like just, just marveling at their control to do it the same way every time, you know? There's a, there's a great, Steve Selvage from The Hold Study tells a story about being in the studio as a young guy. And he, they wanted their, their, it was something they were kind of trying to emulate, a Beastie Boys track. And they wanted it to go like, next time, next time, next, oh, yeah, and yeah, fade yeah. out. And the sort of lazy engineer they were working was like, why don't you just back up while you say that? <laughs> like, back away from the <laughs> mic. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't, that's not the same, man. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Uh, I like it. This this something you've said. Do you have periods of your life that you remember better than others? Oh yeah, I mean that's one of those things I was talking to you about. You know, people who come from houses with, that are that are violent. The memory it, it functions weird, uh, and and you do get stuff that's vivid. And it's not it's not the simple dynamic of erasing the stuff that was unpleasant. It's actually not that at all. It's it it's very weird. I think for my purposes as a writer, it serves me really well because it lets me. F- it lets me leap around a lot and, and, and make connections over weird spans of time. So yeah, so I have vivid stretches, but often I'll find that I have, I have remembered them in the wrong order. Or uh, the other thing I find is like remembering the sizes and dimensions of things. If you can go back and check on them later, I mean, this is a very simple thing, but if it happens to be childhood, you'll find that the place was probably a lot smaller than you thought it was, right? Considerably smaller. But on the other hand, like when I went to when I, I, I got into the building where I lived in Portland when I was 18 and 19, I was on a lot of drugs at this time. Uh, not when I went back, obviously, when I lived there. And my memory of the hallway, which if you'd asked me to describe it before going in, I was like, oh, I don't know, it's got a carpet, there's a payphone here, you know, it's a laundry room over here. But like the scuff that was on my door that I myself left there that was still there 25 years later, I remembered it the second I saw it. I said, oh yeah, I did that, and then I never did anything about it, and neither did anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I know, you know, as a music fan, um, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I, but these are kind of questions I'm asking everyone. Seasons, um, I'm guessing you're like a lot of people that, that there are records that makes, or records or music that makes better sense in different times of the year. Do you have like fall records or winter records, summer records? Or no? I really don't. Uh, I mean, I listen to music constantly. I'm more open to this idea than I used to be. I used to have a sort of a, you know, a, a snobby attitude. Like, no, 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 there's a, that's, a, that's a marketing device. But now I kind of like, like, for one thing, it's like, I have children. So when Christmas music starts to play and the kids get happy about it, I mean, I just love that. It's like, it's really exciting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really fun. The one thing I do think, and I think it just might be because of the way that, I, not marketing, but a sort of presentation, in autumn, atmospheric metal like uh, a Gallic or, or or like Unwound, who's not really metal, uh, not un- Unwound, sorry. <laughs> I used to, 
I used to call unwound diswound. I, I thought that was <laughs> a funny name. You get it, right? So, I get it. Yeah. Diswound. But, but, uh, <laughs> but unwound's leaves turn inside you, right? That now, obviously, it says leaves turn, so it sort of gets you an autumnal feel. But th that's good autumnal music. A lot of the 90s Midwestern uh, instrumental post rock type stuff. To me, when the seasons begin to turn, that music sounds really good, except for Don Cab. Don Cab seems obviously like summer music to me, right? When it's all uh, hot and, and, and fast and with the, you know, with the, the, the polyrhythms and stuff like that. that. That's summery to me. And oh, the other thing is like war. I mean, they have a song called Summer, but all their stuff is summer music, right? Everything war ever did from Lowrider uh, to Summer to uh, Cisco Kid, those are all like unimpeachable summer jams to me. And that makes sense to me. I mean, uh, one of the things in the summer, when it's hot here in New York, uh, Electric Miles to me. Oh, yeah. Makes yeah. a lot, of, you know, and there's some of that polyrhythm. Jack Johnson, of, yeah. Yeah, and uh, On the Corner, all that sounds really good in the summer. But I have, you know, I have like imprinted things um, when the record came out and I bought it that, that can kind of, um, The Replacements Let It Be is the one that really, you know, I like that was the first record I was waiting for it to come out and it was in October. And so that, but, but some others are like when you first heard them or just when it makes sense. It's funny. Is that, is that the Replacements album that has Black Diamond on it? Yeah. So I first heard that one in a record store that December and it was wet in Southern California. So to me, it's a very wintry record because I remember it was damp and dank and I wasn't really down with a lot of that, you know, the the compulsion to like the replacements felt so strong that I was resisting it a lot. But <laughs> yeah. I remember hearing Black Diamond and going, oh, this is kind of great. They're covering a kiss tune. This is amazing. <laughs> you know, and it felt, and the, and the way they do it is sort of so, so uh, it feels, feels like a, a cellar, you know, it, it has, has, has a sort of wet and drippy feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when, when I heard that cover, I was getting into, punk and whatever you called indie rock college rock at the time but i was still a closet kiss fan and i felt a little bit vindicated when i saw that they <laughs> did that and that it was okay to have these things which i absolutely believe it's funny i mean because i didn't really like kiss but i have always been a great defender of black diamond i think that's a cool song you know it's like i'll, I'll still defend it <laughs> oh you know i always say uh kiss say what you will about them but it's the only band without any bad songs <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic line. <laughs> yeah, because we actually have. I wonder if I could. I wonder if I could read it to you. We in in my band we think about Kiss almost constantly, and uh, like it, it's really quite remarkable. And uh, and we we did a worst of Kiss playlist. We were hanging around backstage in New Haven. Let's see, do I still have it or did I delete it? I would not be terribly surprised. Uh, but it was like Worcester is like the best for that. For for it had to, she's so European has to be on she's there. She's so European was absolutely on there. <laughs> I can't I can't find it anymore. Shandy maybe I don't know. God, what was on there? I mean, a lot of a lot of jeans. Uh, oh, what's the one that has the line? You ask me what hotel I stay in. One of the best. Is that <laughs> is that great expectations or something? It might be own. great expectations is terrible. <laughs> yeah. So when I came up with the idea of this podcast um, and thinking a lot about memory and wanting to talk to people, uh, I got your book, Devil House in the Mail, and I read it. And I thought, this is actually really, um, to me, uh, lines up with a lot of things I was thinking. But I want to start in talking about Devil House. Did you have any like hometown crime stories that captured your heart and mind when you were young that you became obsessed with in some way? So I talk about these in part seven because the narrator part seven is me. And he, he mentions, I mention two things that were both things I heard about. And one, uh, and this is sort of a, a big punchline, the book was The Mean Man, right? Now, The Mean Man didn't, didn't do anything. 
he was it was just a person's house right one of my friends told me not to step on that guy's lawn that's that's the mean man right and in my mind a whole mythos grew up around him you know and why why is he mean why does he have a horseshoe in his window right because I, I didn't know anything about that and he had a sign that said lucky lager which is a type of beer but i didn't know what it meant so so now this is i mean i could read i was a really good young reader and those are words i don't understand anything i didn't understand is frightening to me and so so that's the first one but then <laughs> this is a funny one i didn't talk about so my parents divorced we moved across town which is to say like two miles right but it seemed like a world away right and uh, but I was still going to Catholic school, and now I had to take a bus there, right? Uh, because life had changed, and so, so I'm catching the bus, and the, we had to change buses. And this is the craziest thing to me. Or maybe my mom would drop me off at, at, at this other bus stop. I don't remember entirely. But there was a an old California house. I mean, like a 19th century. There's this sort of uh, Gothic style with sort of turret-like second floor stuff. Looks like something off the prairie, right? You know, it was it was near the bus stop, but it now abutted like a parking lot of an early street, you know, early 1971 strip mall or something like that. And it was dusty looking and empty, you know. And some older kid, to me, he seemed like a teenager, but he was probably like 10. He was like, you ever go up there? I said, no. I said, yeah, I don't, you know, because there, there's guys who live in there. And they will, and the reason I remember this is because it was the first time I had heard this particular bad word. I didn't know what it meant, except that I did the second he said it. He said, if you go in there, they'll grab a hold of you and stick your dick up your nose. Nice. <laughs> now, I didn't know what a dick was. I was like, what is he even talking But I do know what you're talking about. You could only mean one thing, right? Yeah. And so, and I was, and the first thing I was like, why would they, I mean, in my young mind, the second you tell me something's going to happen, my first question is like, well, why is someone doing that? I need to know what their motivation is, you know? And like, it was a very important question to me as a child. I think that's Catholic school working, right? It's like, I need to know what their goal is. But But this was a chaos presentation of like some, People who live in an abandoned house whose sole thing is to, to in, inflict some sort of weird physical thing on you. Um, and then in a sort of classic of my mom, when I went home, I said, hey, this guy said not to go in the house because here's, what house are you talking about? This gray house, the one, oh, no, no, the, the League of Women Voters has their bake sale there every year. It's fine. You know, I, and I say, oh, yeah, yeah. Said, but what did he say? And I, I told her, and she, my mom immediately starts going, well, I don't know how they would do that. Right, and starting to speculate on on how it would be achievable. <laughs> so that's my; those are the first sort of mythos ones, and then the next two are my friend Darla when we moved to Milpitas, who loved to tell stories about some house down the block where something horrible and violent happened. And I remember her insisting when I, you know, after she told two or three, they say like, you know, that's that, that's, that's impossible. There's no way that could be. She said, no, all my stories are true, <laughs> and she was vehement about it. Right. And I was like, I really liked her. I was like, oh, you wouldn't even say that if that wasn't true. And I was, I was quite curious. But I think the first one I ever actually heard about actually happening would have had to have been either the son of Sam or Carol Chessman, uh, who had an Alan Alda movie, right? You remember called Kill Me If You Can? I don't remember that, Carol Chessman. Carol Chessman was the red light bandit, I think was his name. And he would put a red light in the back of his car and pretend to be a cop and then pull... Uh, women over and, uh, and and rape and murder them, um, but he his was the case that ended the death penalty in uh, in California. Uh, I don't know if they ever did bring it back, uh, but he was they. I think they did kill him. Uh, but yeah, so I remember that one a lot. Yeah, when I, when I was a kid in, in uh, 1985, a woman named Christine Kreitz was killed, 
in Martin Luther King Park. She was involved in a gang thing. She was 16. They thought they, she snitched on them, and they executed her. And they did it in this up against this tennis uh, center that my mom played tennis at. It wasn't that close to my house, but it was in South Minneapolis. So I drove by there a lot and I became fascinated with it. And I read every piece of paper, you know, every, every article in the paper about it. And I, you know, I followed it and then the trials coming up and it was the first crime I remember being obsessed with years later. Um, I got to know the uh, David Carr, the reporter for the New York times. Oh yeah. And um, we had dinner one night and I brought it up and he said, you know, I was the guy at the twin cities reader that reported on all that and and he followed up by sending me a package of xerox of all the clippings and it was it was like the best present i ever got you know yeah seriously that's incredible (laughs) and like i thought about you know being in you know being being sort of obsessive about these small crimes when i read not small crimes but local crimes when i read this book and you know it, it seems like the books you know it's an investigation into what really happened sort of you know what was generally understood versus what was generally understood to happen. I, I was thinking about legends and memorials a lot and the dead and departed are often aggrandized, whitewashed, etc. Their fault, their faults are overlooked in the favor of their accomplishments. It seems to me that in your songs and in this book, you often do the opposite. You say like, okay, you've read the headlines, but here's the humans here. And, yes. That I think that is what I do. And um, is that a Christian instinct? Do you think? 100 <laughs> percent it's like i mean the thing is, i don't think you have to be christian to think that i i think it's a, a also a, a rational position you know i think it's a uh if you want to contrast christian positions with rational positions which i think is fair but i think i think yeah um you know uh one of the best scriptures is there is none righteous no not one right and most people don't really believe that one that's the hardest one for most people i think well there's none righteous but but this guy's pretty great right and well actually you have to cure yourself of all the great man, the perfect guy theories of humanity to really go in on it. And people really struggle with this to this day. It's like, it's funny when you're very young, you often like to say like somebody is literally a perfect human being or whatever. It's such a bad habit to get into, right? But you do, and you know, you're exaggerating, but I think the, the rhetorical habits you adopt wind up informing the way you think, but uh, it's a Christian instinct for me, but I think also, you know, I mean, it's also a communist instinct. You know, it's like, if you are a good communist, you don't believe in hero worship. You know, hero worship, it runs counter to any... And when I say a good communist, I mean, I, I'm proceeding for the assumption that we all agree that, you know, like the, even the, the hardest right person has to agree, look, if you concede all the following possibilities and we have a society where all share equally, that would be ideal, right? I mean, like, you have to be an, you have to be an Ayn Rand objectivist to go, nope, the person who is the most successful deserves the most money. Okay, fine, if that's your position, you know. But I think most of us think it would be great if everybody had as much as they needed, right? And in that way of thinking, you have the first thing you have to do is stop lionizing men, right? You have to stop saying, well, this guy was a greater man than these other guys, right? It's like, because otherwise you're going to wind up saying that that guy deserves to live in a nicer house. <laughs> so, so I do think for me, it's a Christian instinct, but I think it's, it's bigger than that. I, it, I'll say that I am informed in my belief that all people are of the exact same value, right? Uh, by my Christian thinking, but I don't think that's a necessary qualification for that thought. Absolutely. No, you, you know, I, I was thinking when I was sort of writing this out, and do you know that there's a Todd Snyder song? I don't know if you've listened to him, but there's a song called Just Get Like Old Times. And it's a story about how he meets up with this woman he used to know, and she's now a prostitute. And they have a party in a hotel room, and the cop comes, eventually the cop comes in and says, Hey, you know, you're in here, you know, and we know her, and she's a prostitute. And he says, 
I'm sure she is, but that's not all she is. And I thought, <laughs> that's good. like, that's that's the whole thing in some in some way, or that or that's 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 part of what we're saying, you know? Because it seems yeah, like right. you're not excusing them for their actions necessarily. You're saying there's just more to them, or, or you know, yes, yes, they did this, but understand how maybe they got there. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question we confront a lot is like, what are what are the things that people can do where you say, well, no matter who you are, you are also the person who did this, right? It's like, I think most of us who, who you know, well, I'm certain that all anybody with Catholic upbringing goes, yeah, no, no matter how good I do now, I'm still the guy who fucked up here, you know? And so, I mean, I have that. I think, but the thing is like, in the 80s, people talked a lot about toxic shame and stuff like that, but I'm very glad to be able to remember myself at my worst, you know, even when it plagues me, I think, well, you don't, but remember, you know, what you, what you need to be better than remember that, you know, what you're capable of if you, if you are not careful, you know, and, uh, uh, I think those things are, are, are important and good to know your own complexity, both for the better and for the worse a little bit. Hey, I'm Craig Finn here on that's how I remember it. We often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties. Edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. I, there, there was this, um, in, there was that book where the author rode around with David Foster Wallace, and he was kind of riffing in the car. I forget what it's called now. They made a movie of it. He, he says at the end, you know, the trick is to live yourself that you would just the smallest, purest little baby. And I was like, for, I loved that when I read it, and then I started thinking about it. I'm like, I don't know, you know, like, like, is that healthy? Is that entirely healthy? Well, like, maybe I should remember some of the times I fucked up. Oh, they're good for you. It's. Uh, I mean, I think. I mean, <laughs> you. The when you take communion, you're not supposed to do so if you are conscious of grave sin, right? <laughs> so, so I think that you know it, it's so basic. Like in order to commune with God, you you need to to somehow have expiated yourself of your sins. I mean, it's a memory process, you know. Uh, so, so yeah. Yeah. Um. So I feel like in in my in my childhood in the '80s. There was kind of a sense of omerta against the parents, you know. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> I don't. I don't have kids, so I don't know if that's still the case. I sort of suspect it's a little different. But even in like '80s movies, like ET or Goonies, something happens, and the kids are like, "Well, the first thing is we can't tell the parents," you know. Yes. Like, that's right. And um, I feel like some some you've all occupied the space some somewhat in this book and in some of your songs too. Oftentimes, it seems to me in your work like in some of it, the adults have failed the kids. Um, do you agree? So it's funny. That's been pointed out to me. It's never what I'm driving at, but people notice it. Right? People say, oh, wow, there's a lot of uh, younger people in your books. And it's true. I mean, there also, there's other people I go, I'm, I'm not setting out to tell that story, but I do think it's fundamental to me both, you know, because it's something you experience so profoundly, especially if you were coming up in that early post-punk era, The you were inheriting the hippie countercultural mistrust of parents, but you had your own considerably, I think, more aggro take on that, right? It was not just mistrust, but but rage, you know? And uh, uh, it wasn't just that they were clued out, it was that they were the problem. 
And there's that, there's the fact that I then worked on the other side of that. As a nurse, I worked on an adolescent unit, a children's unit, right? I was the guy who needed to prove himself worthy of trust, right? And I could see, and these were kids who had every good reason not to trust adults. And that's the thing. I mean, I think that's what informs it more than having been an adolescent is like, I have seen just how badly so many adults abuse the trust that children can't help but have in them, right? And, and it, it is natural and healthy and good that, the, that children trust the adults in their lives. It is, it's literally instinctive, right? And when you abuse that trust, you, you hurt them, right? In a very real way, whether that abuse is, is you know, seismic or, or minor, you know, in lying to them, you know, uh, about stuff, it messes with their brains, with their, with their, with their health. And, and I saw it over and over and over again. And I'm on their side. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, uh, that's, those, are, those are the people that I'm always thinking of. You know, a lot of my stories are rooted sometimes in those worlds. And I'm wanting, you know, should any of my, the kids I used to take care of ever run across this stuff, I want them to go, hey, John got it a little bit, you know, still kind of square, but he got it, you know. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, one of your most beloved songs, or at least one of the beloved songs is... Uh, the um, death metal band from Denton. And, yes. you know, that's almost telling the kids' version of it, you know? Like, I'm sure there's an authority's version of it that, that has a lot of files on a desk, you know? Well, that's the second half of, or the first, yeah, the second half of Master of Reality, where, you know, it's like uh, the, the the Black Sabbath book is, is, I mean, I try and show a little complexity. Most people who read that just go, I hate Gary. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, and and you're right, but but at the same time, what do you what do you expect Gary to do in his position? It's like he, you know, <laughs> I, I I hope that it's a little complex. <laughs> how how does all this relate? And you know, like all this, um, how does being a parent sort of relate to this? Change this, influence it? I really don't. It's really not for me to say. One thing I'm not super reflective as I go on on stuff like that. I'm always sort of just acting on you know what what seems best to me at the moment, you know. But also. The house that I live in now and that I, that we are building as a family is virgin soil for me. I haven't lived in a house like this, you know, so I don't really know uh, what it, what it's like. I, I know that, you know, that like my children learn to trust that I will be coming home over and over and over again, right? I think that's kind of great, actually. You know, even though it's very painful to be on tour, and it's very hard. My wife is struggling. We don't have family around. So, so when I'm gone, it's just her, you know, so... Um, but uh, and that's that's really super hard. But um, but my children, in the meantime, I think are growing to understand something about consistency that was not present in my life, right? And so, so that's the stuff uh, that I am doing. I mean, with parenting, the meditative space of parenting is that you cannot. There's no such thing as a perfect parent, right? There's a book actually that people recommend called "A Good Enough Parent" because that's what you're trying to do. You're just trying to do good enough, right? In that way, it's the same as making music. You are not going to write Mahler's Ninth Symphony. You can't. Right, he already did it, and if you try, you will fail. But you want to make a really good enough that people can take something from it, you know. And that's what you, that's what you're doing. And maybe maybe do a little better than good enough sometimes. That's that's great, you know. And so, and that's what that's exactly what parenting is like. Do they have food? Are they uh, you know are they protected? Are they safe? You know, do they feel that they can trust the house they live in to provide them with all things they need? Then you're there, right? Then you then you then you aim for higher always. But uh, but that's that's really all you can you can ask. And I think people. I think people get uh, lost and confused when they when they start aiming for perfect because you know because again, you know there's that bumper sticker if you feel perfect try walking on water right <laughs> <laughs> yeah as I've been having these conversations about memory I sort of realized that 
family, I mean, genetics, but also family is its own kind of memory, right? You know, we pass these things down and folklore, uh, family lore, et cetera, and traditions and whatnot. But it's just how we, you know, how we're passing things down is a big part of memory and not just in, you know, the records we remember, et cetera. So on that subject, there's a couple of books that you really should like order today because this is utterly germane to what you're doing. Uh, one is called Kin, K-I-N. Uh, and it's by Milenko Yergovich. Uh, Yergovich is J-E-R-G-O-V-I-C, and it's published by Archipelago, who is a translation house. They're amazing. It's a it, it's like a thousand pages long, and when you look at it, you'll go, "This is daunting," but it's just a, a pleasure to read. It will not actually. It'll take you a month, right? Uh, if you're a, if you're a fast reader, less than that, but but it'll take a month. But but it's literally about familial memory. Right. He's tracing his entire family. He's Croatian. But even to say that you're Croatian is to place yourself in a very specific terrain of memory because Croatia and Serbia and Bosnia and, and that whole region, I forget what it was called prior to any of that, but, uh, but he goes into all that. A lot of that has to do with constructing family memory and family memory kind of supersedes all the other memories. Kin is an amazing book. And there's a book by Stepanova called In Memory of Memory. It's from New Directions. Uh, and that one's a little denser. And Kin is just a pleasure to read. You can't believe how 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 good it is. It's just great. And uh, uh, Stepanova is a little little thornier in its essays, but but it's it's specifically also about memory and the Soviet Union. Awesome. Uh, the the actual you know uh, in the Devil House, the actual structure. It's part, yes. of, part of your story, the house, the, yes, which is, right. a, you know, it's it's a soda fountain, then it's a newsstand, then it's a porn store. Uh, so he's tracing, you know, the real estate records and the local newspaper uh, articles about it and trying to figure out, which is which is really cool, uh, part Thank I really you. loved. And like, you know, trying to figure out what, what this was, and then he moves into it. But I kept thinking, well, you know, going from a soda fountain to a newsstand to a porn store is a downward trajectory, most likely. And I'm wondering... Uh, depending if on where you stand. <laughs> <laughs> is that part of the story? Sort of. I mean, the thing is, but I talk about the house being restored to its proper estate, and its proper estate is when it's exalted by the kids, right? Uh, sure. When, when, they, when they decorate it, and it's horrific to anybody from the outside... But when you understand what they're doing as their own artistic expression, right, as they're writing and they're painting and all that stuff. One of my favorite scenes in the book is when Derek shows up the morning after Seth has been up all night doing it, right? And Seth says, what do you think? And he's afraid Derek might be mad, you know? And Derek says, wow, you guys really did it. This is amazing, right? I love this moment, right? Because it's like, it is it is punk rock. It's like back in 83, 84, you could hear... Uh, like when the Bad Brains did their did their uh, crossover turn, uh, what was that record called? Quickness, right? And people here go, God, it's beautiful, right? Now, people who hadn't grown up with that fast music, had been into it, would say, what do you, well, beautiful is not the kind of word we use to describe this. But if you listen to doom metal, like, oh, this is a gorgeous record. It's it's rich and it's lush. Most people who don't listen to that kind of music would go, what, are you being, are you making a joke? Like if, if you're listening to, you know, uh, I don't know uh, who's uh, uh, not dissection, but the, um, uh, like an ever flowing stream is the album I'm thinking of. Uh, but but these these Finnish death metal guitar tones that are these incredibly crunchy, slow uh, things, and they're beautiful to me. Once you're inside the vocabulary of it, it's absolutely beautiful. The same as oh man, like if you see any pictures of old hardcore shows like eighty eighty one, and there's some guy and he's visibly sixteen and he's shirtless and he's in midair. And he's going to land on the audience. And you 
your heart swells for the beauty of it, right? Whereas I think most people who aren't from that scene would go, this just looks, <laughs> looks like a mess. He's going to fall. He's going to hurt it. You go, well, to me, it's beautiful, you know? And and that that moment in that book, I think, is one of those, the, the place has been raised to a very high estate from the right perspective. And from other perspectives, it looks like a bunch of porn that's been made even more unseemly. <laughs> and so, but it really is, it's, it's all a matter of perspective there. And I mean, I think that's kind of an obvious point, but it's also true that like, you know, you can always find the cliche that speaks to the point you're trying to make. One man's trash is another man's treasure or something like that, you know, but... But it's really profoundly true, you know, that like like what is beautiful to somebody depends on what their experience of that thing is. Well, I mean, it's a great, a great thing for me to bring up because I think, yeah, in that moment, they found safety in that house, yeah. you know, freedom, right. uh, all artistic expression. It's a it's for a few days. It's utopian, you know, and um, right, right. And, and and so and you bring this up because I actually just got the Glenn Friedman. There's a new photo book. He took a black flag and uh, oh, all yeah. black flag photos. And I love the photos where they're not that punk yet, you know, not, not just the band, but the audience. And, and a lot of people are wearing short hair and kind of white shirts, but there's no Mohawks and there's no, and they're, it's 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 hardcore, but they're sort of still figuring out what it's gonna be. Magic moment in in, in music, yeah, a very magical time when uh, the audience doesn't know exactly what they are. Yeah, and it's I I I look at that and I find a lot of beauty in it, and um, that is a good transition because I wanted to ask you, you've got a new album coming out, and the first song, Training Montage, which I love so much. Thank you. I was thinking about a particular, it, it reminded me of something, maybe not what you think. It reminded me of the Cro-Mag song, Survival of the Streets, which says... <laughs> the best compliment I will be paid this year. Living inside enclosed walls, got no money in my pockets, no pictures on the walls. Wake up with a gun on my head, that's the life, the life I've led. What can I do? Life's hard, so I gotta be hard too. And so I guess my question is, do you think this is your age of coral? <laughs> so... It <laughs> <laughs> it's a very funny question to me because do you know where the the the, the title Age of Coral comes from? Is it's, is it the not the um, Krishna Bible? The yep, uh, it's the yeah. Bhagavad Gita, right? Right. And and I was really into that from about ninety six to ninety nine ish, right? Like the the Krishnas Iskon catered my wedding, and we we distributed prasadam. That's what you call giving food to somebody that's been offered to Krishna. That it becomes Krishna, right? So then, and this is one of my favorite things about that religion. Then, if I give you this food. And we, as we were talking about this earlier. When you take communion, if you if you take communion without discerning the Lord in the host, there's a saying in the teaching that you are then eating it to your own damnation. Right? You should not eat it unless you believe it is God. Right? Okay. And if you do so, then you don't get the benefit of communion. You get nothing. You have to believe it to receive it. In Iskon, that's not true. I can offer food to God. God transforms it, it becomes God, and I can feed it to you, and you get the spiritual benefit whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter, right? You get, now you might not get as much as I do if I believe and have done the offering, but I always thought that's a very great teaching, right? It's, it's truer than communion, like it's good. Now now God is available to everybody who believes or not, or doesn't believe, I love this. So, but anyway, Age of Quarrel is from that. And this is like a world I've spent so long in, I was very, <laughs> I was super into it. And, and I actually saw Ray Capo give a reading we were in the same bill in Holland in the Hague in like '99, right? Wow, cool. And I've been I've been looking, trying to get the poem he read. I even wrote to him at one point about it. I didn't get a response. Ray, if you're listening, you read a poem called "Turn It Around." I have wanted to hear this poem for over a decade, for 20 years now. I've been looking for "Turn It Around," but uh, but 
but yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't, is this my age of quarrel? Yes, emphatically yes. Uh, uh, th- this is that record, and it will have that kind of impact on the scene, generally speaking, especially in the Lower East Side. I don't think you're going to be able to live without this record, uh, honestly. You will have no street credential without it. In, in 1980, I guess it was 86, you know, they, the Chromax came to Minneapolis opening for GBH, and, you know, not oh, to be man. all grandpa's 80s, but before the internet, things kind of didn't come to you know you you kind of had to see him with your own eyes and so i'm sure people oh, yeah. in new york knew about the chromax for a long time but they came to minneapolis and literally changed the scene people shaved their heads you know it was like i want i want to be that guy yeah the exploited coming to southern california did that when the exploited came to southern california absolutely everybody got their minds blown and the same thing happened i think actually with gbh but then the big thing that happened in socal in the punk story was when discharge came it was at peak, like every SoCal punk was united in their love of Discharge, right? And Discharge comes through on Grave New World, and yeah. the punks went insane. It was like, <laughs> that was one of the two shows that you could hear tape of these shows, like, what are you guys doing? You're ruining it. <laughs> that was a really, I mean, I, I, I've never understood if that was confrontational or if that's just what they wanted to do, but it was ill-received. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, you listen to it now, and I think the main, the only, if he hadn't changed the way he sang... This is one of those cases where he's audibly trying to sound like somebody he thinks sounds cool, right? Mm. But whoever that person was, he's not getting there. And it's, he sounds kind of like the singer from Sirathangol, uh, which is not somebody the punks were going to be down with in those days. <laughs> the, the, the record kind of deals with action films, which are their own genre, legends, etc. What's your relationship with these movies? So my sort of trajectory is, for most of my very young life, I kind of wanted to be a snob. Right. Even though I loved monster movies as a kid. But by the time I'm 12 and 13, I'm the kind of guy who wants to be reading stuff that's a few years ahead of everybody else. I don't want to like the same movies other people like. And I don't. Right. I like either cheap horror movies, but I'm 14. It's either foreign movies. Right. Or or classy stuff, whether that's, you know, auteur stuff from the 70s and the 80s had a bunch of that Scorsese, whatever. But, but I mean, I also had a taste for trash cinema, for the stuff that everybody else would consider bad. I always liked that, you know. But action movies were not on my radar until my friend Joel, uh, when we were having sort of one of those really magical periods of, of late youth, you know, 19, 20, 21, working jobs for eight hours a day, but then having eight more hours to just do whatever, you know. It's like not, you know, just nothing going on. In Southern California, weather's always nice. And Joel would like stop by and go, you want to go see what's playing at the dollar theater? Yeah, let's go. And Joel wasn't the, like my, my style would be, let's look at all the names of the movies and figure out which one would be the good. And Joel would be like band of the hand. Let's see band of the hand <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Like he was just not, it was, it was like, the point is getting into the movie. And if it sucks, then it sucks. And we have that experience. If it's good, then it's good. We have that experience, you know? So, so I wound up seeing some action stuff with Joel um, I don't even remember which ones particularly, but I started thinking, oh, these are actually more fun than I think they are. Then the VCR was in Ascent, right? It was like this 86, 87, 88, renting movies is a big thing, you know? And I got it in my head to watch all of the Jean-Claude Van Damme movies just as a thing, you know? Because at that time, I also had found that if I had a movie that wasn't, you know, Kurosawa or whatever playing, and I got an idea for a song, I could just start plucking something out pause the movie, write and record the song, the version that's going to get released, if it's early Mountain Goats, right? And then start the movie back up, right? Sometimes I would even use a phrase from the movie as like a sample, you know, uh, on the tape. And action movies were perfect for that, especially uh, karate movies, you know, any, any of that kind of stuff. 
Uh, so, so yeah, so I found them like sort of comfort food, you know, and I also am really, I was all, always intrigued by the, like a lot of them try to take place in a very clear moral universe, but they're actually abhorrent, you know, they're <laughs> actually like the morals closely is like Death Wish, right? Bronson's Death Wish. The first one I think is clearly you're supposed to think this guy is becoming the monster he seeks to destroy. Old story. But the rest of the Death Wish movies are just like, just just violence porn. It's like, oh yeah, he's here now and he's going to be even worse to the people who are bad than they would be to him, right? And and, th and now they'll get what they have coming. Will he be happy? No, he's Charles Bronson. He can't even look happy. It's not in his skill set, right? So, so I got very, very, very into those. And then when I wrote this record, I, I, I hadn't, everybody I knew was binge watching stuff during the pandemic, during lockdown. And I just never watch stuff anymore. I buy DVDs or Blu-rays and I forget to watch them. I read books, I do music. Like those are my main things. And like November rolled around, I was like, you need, I was telling myself, you need to watch some movies. You will enjoy them. And it will give you the relaxation you're not getting from your other pursuits. So when I turned on Netflix or whatever it was, I was like, find the action movies. You'll finish them. You know, instead of, if I start watching a serious movie and I get a little tired, oh, I'll pick it up tomorrow. And I never do, right? But I started watching like, you know, I mean, Mel Gibson, I think, is a monster, but uh, his movie, what was it called? Blood Blood Father, I think. Uh, I think that's the name of it. It was just fantastic. <laughs> it's like, oh, I got to get it. I started watching these Indonesian action movies, which is the whole thing. And uh, uh, Ip Man is one of them. But uh, but if you look into the whole world of Indonesian action movies, they're, they're, they're remarkable. And I got super into them. And that's why I started going, kids who go to bed, fire up an action movie, grab my guitar, and start writing the way that I used to write when I was like 24. Right. Only now I'm a better songwriter, so so I was able to go some more places with it. Yeah, yeah. You you've successfully made albums with like you know kind of beat. The, I'm thinking beat the champ, goths, and league with dragons, which approach the material from an angle, but the songs end up being so much more. Are these themes that reveal them something, or are they like a trick or a limitation you put on yourself to induce or produce creativity? So I I, I keep dropping the name of the mother church, but I think. One of the big differences between Catholicism and Lutheranism and the Protestant thing is Catholics will tell you to your face that structure is great. It's great to have limits and boundaries, right? And to know what they are, right? Now, we know in art that one of the functions of a boundary is like when you transgress it, then it has meaning, right? You know, then, then when you choose to transgress the boundary, then, you know, then you are making a choice that takes you someplace instead of just sort of mindlessly saying, I'm going to do the thing somebody told me not to do, right? In terms of making records and, and writing songs and everything, the reason I write in rhyme, you know, the reason I like my rhymes to be perfect and not, you know, I like to write crime with time, but I don't want to rhyme crime with I am or something, and I don't like it. It's like, I want the rhyme to be exact when it can be. Uh, I'm willing to fudge that when, uh, when, you know, if the right word happens to not rhyme perfectly, but I like structure is the point of what I'm saying. I, I, I value structure both because I, I think the more exact the structure, the more the space within it actually proves to be infinite, you know, but it's infinite within, it's infinite yet coherent, right? Whereas you have infinity without boundaries around it, then it's not coherent. It's, it's infinitely free, so it's got that going for it, you know, but I am much more interested by the infinity that's present within uh, within boundaries. And for me, setting parameters to write within accomplishes that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that, that makes sense to me. I mean, that's, it's, whether it's about this or, you know, I, I do that too, or like there's going to, there 30 minutes, I'm going to write a song 
and then I'm going to see where it's at. Uh, that's that's a boundary, right? And then you're like, is it any good? Do I throw it away or do I edit it? You know, um, but 30 minutes, you got something. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really healthy way to write is like to say, what are the strictures? What? How am I going to do this? I mean, you know, and then when you decide, well, I'm not doing any of that. I'm just doing a thing. Then you're transgressing your own limit, right? Uh, that you set for yourself and you go someplace cool. Yeah, yeah. I had one, the, the, the one question uh, that uh, First Blood, um, which is obviously the uh, Sylvester Stallone, Sean Rambo movie that you talk about on on the record, as far as I can tell, it sort of dismantles a legend. John, John Rambo never went to Vietnam. That's right. I, I, I suspect he actually did. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, I'm not, that's not actually true, the stuff I'm saying, but it's about, I mean, what I'm talking about is that like most of the action heroes if you were actually present for their carnage, you wouldn't pump your fist, you know? You wouldn't go, ah, oh, yeah, he's doing it. I, maybe, I fear that in the moment we're living in, maybe a lot of people would, right? But like, there used to be a take among opponents of the death penalty that all executions should be televised because then people will, will all oppose the death penalty when they see how monstrous it is. I used to believe that and I kind of don't now, you know? It's like, I think people actually have, have really shown their asses, but... uh but yeah, but but the point is like Paul Kersey, the guy who Death Wish is based on, this is a vigilante. Vigilanteism is not good. Vigilanteism is absolutely morally abhorrent, you know. And Rambo, you know, I mean, uh, going going into Vietnam to appoint yourself judge, jury, and executioner of other people who are are you know fighting for their country because your country happens to have invaded theirs, not cool. Right? <laughs> so right. Uh, so, so all that stuff. So First Blood is kind of the most explicitly, uh, it's the one that tells you how to take a lot of the other stuff on the album because the rest of the album is a pretty unabashed celebration of violence, right? So, right. But, but do I celebrate violence? No, obviously that's myth, right? I think it's, it's fine to tell those stories. I think once you start uh, taking, the, taking the stories to sort of uh, as, as ethical imperatives, you run into some trouble and that's what, that's what First Blood is doing. It also... <laughs> It also is loosely based on Bertha by the Grateful Dead. <laughs> One of my maybe my favorite Grateful Dead song. It's, I love it, and the, the riff is well, the the rhythm is dump dump da. It's it's similar. It's, it's a little lot faster. It's uh, it, I think the tempo of that song uh, when the dead do that, you know, it's uh, oftentimes it's the 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 uh, one of the more upbeat songs in the set, and I always just really love love that. Yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm very fond of seventy three. Is sort of my sweet spot for the dead. It's like I like it when the country impulse. And the psychedelic impulse are like right on the same page, but they're not quite getting into the seventies quite deep enough. When they're doing me and my uncle, Bertha, I got to get back. What's that one? Um, uh, Cumberland Blues, right? Uh, all, all those are my favorite zones. I was uh, I, I, first blood definitely like I, I kept thinking of. I kept just picturing a guy with Soldier of Fortune magazine, which remember people used to bring that into junior high, and and obviously people who had not fought in any wars at thirteen years old. But you know, <laughs> look what I got. I got one more. I want to tell you before I go, the, the record's amazing. And thank you. There seems to be even more electric guitars on this record. Is that you? I play a lot of them. Uh, I mean, Alicia, who produced it, plays on most of the songs too, and she's an electric, electric guitarist. Matt's main intro, instrument, everybody thinks it's the sax, but actually guitar, I think, is uh, it was his main thing in college, and uh, he's a music grad. Uh, so, so like main thing means that like he's really good at it. So him and Alicia were playing together all the time. I play electric... God, I think a lot of the time it's it's me doing electric on First Blood. It's me doing electric on Hostages, on Need More Bandages, on um, uh, Extraction Point, which I think is maybe the best song I've ever written. Um, 
One thing I did was I bought this Les Paul copy. It's a Greco that Brian May apparently played one of these in the 70s. It was so his guitar for a while was this Greco, this Les Paul copy. I get big crushes on instruments like that, right? On cheap, cheap early 80s, late 70s shredders, copies and stuff. I have a ton of them. Like that's that's I'm not quite a collector, but I, I buy them when I see them. <laughs> cool. And I got this Greco. And it sounded so good. It sounded very silkwormy, you know, and, uh, and and I wanted that vibe, you know. Speaking of people who tell stories, I mean, you know, silkworm songs always tell an interesting story that, you, that, that, that they force you to piece together yourself in a really great way. Yeah, um, I, w- I will say that Extraction Point is amazing. Guys on Every Corner, I uh, oh, when you said um, a robust display delegation into a sax solo, I got out of my chair and pumped my <laughs> fist. Well, thank you. I mean, you got to take partial credit because a robust East Bay delegation could have leapt out of a lifter puller. So it's yeah. like that's a that's a phrasing I don't think I get to without a long tenure as a Craig Finn fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question: Do you think about legacy, like how you'll be remembered, or you just show up and go to work? I try not to. Uh, I I don't. I think it's. I, I think. If, I think it's gauche to to think about that stuff. You know. Uh, I, and also, I don't think it matters. And I, I think that any attempt to control it is vain. You will be remembered probably for the work you do, right? Unless you do some serious monster stuff, and then you get to be related, remembered for your monster stuff. But the uh, mon- monster in the bad sense of monster, because I think monsters are great. <laughs> but but, uh, but otherwise, it's literally just going to be your work. You know, it's going to be the if, if you get remembered at all, which eventually none of us will be, right? Uh, and I, I'm always thinking a long view. We talk about memories like, you know, oblivion has a real appeal to me that like, you know, 4,000 years from you, I guarantee nobody remembers what I did, right? And in that sense, it makes it more important now, you know? Like, it's this is the moment that that stuff might matter in, right? And this moment may be a 30-year moment. It might be 30 years from now, something I did still finds purchase somewhere. But that's still now, in the long term. You know, that's still, I'm still working in the present. But I try not to think about where I'm, you know, about, about who my who my peers might have been in the past or anything or who they are. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I think in terms of who's working in my rough neighborhood, I think that uh, the, about that, like you, Bill Callahan, Christine Fellows, uh, I, I, tr- I try and think of those those names just to, to get a sense of what we're all doing and maybe what tradition we're in. But as far as like posterity, I try very hard not to think about posterity because I do think that it's, that it's rude. <laughs> that sounds like a nice treat to live on to me. Um, <laughs> with those as my neighbors. Uh, that's a beautiful answer, actually. And I think that's a great place to end it. Thank, Thank you, you so much f- uh, for being a part of this, John. I really appreciate you taking the time. So there we go. Uh, as promised, a great visit from the legendary John Darneal. It's always a pleasure to hang with him and listen to his thoughts on everything. I have to bring up that I think we both meant the Bad Brains Eye Against Eye album rather than the Quickness album when we were talking about that. My bad, I didn't catch it at the time. I do hope that Ray Capo might come forward with the name of that poem he read at The Hague and where we might find it, for John's sake. Also thanks to Dadgrass for the sponsorship. Head up dadgrass.com and use discount code FIN for 20% off. And especially thanks to you for listening and supporting the podcast. I'm having a blast talking to all these amazing people. I'll be on tour supporting the Legacy of Rentals record in the fall in the UK, Europe, and the US of A. Hit up craigfin.net for details and tickets. I'd love to see you in person and maybe talk about some of this stuff. And please keep listening, subscribe, and stay tuned for more great guests on That's How I Remember It. Stay positive. <laughs>